Hebrews 9, verse 27, uh, the writer of Hebrews says, It's appointed unto people to die once, and after this the judgment. Last week we spoke about death, um, and I mentioned at the beginning of that lesson that that was sort of a a beginning of uh, some thoughts, preliminary thoughts to a lesson uh, and the subject we were going to consider in Africa. Uh, And I thought that tonight I'd take a couple minutes maybe and uh, share with you uh, some uh, other things that are associated with that topic. One of the things that sort of scares me a little bit about what we're going to do is that uh, uh, after each lesson and each one of those 49 lessons that are going to be presented, they're going to have a question and answer session where individuals from the audience can ask us questions about what we've said or what we should have said or what they're uh, something from the Bible. Um, and I've never been very good at impromptu answering questions, so I've been studying about that and try to prepare myself for that kind of scenario, not knowing maybe what kind of questions you're going to get. Um, and this is one of those topics. One of the topics for the day is on uh, life after de- life after death and the things that uh, the Bible teaches about that. And when I got studying on that, I found out how much I didn't really know about <laughs> uh, what the Bible teaches about that. Uh, so you don't get to ask any questions after I get done uh, tonight. Uh, but uh, I'm sure if you're like me, you have some uh, about uh, what the Bible teaches or what's ahead of us. And uh, that's an interesting question. You know, sometimes we ask ourselves, uh, get, we get done with one thing, and the, and the question comes up, well, what's next? You know, okay, that's finished now, what's next? And that's an important question in many ways under many circumstances to ask what's next. But there's probably no more time in which that is a, a more important, pertinent question uh, than when someone is facing death, uh, whether it's our own death that might be impending or whether it's the death of a loved one. Uh, what's after that? Is, that? is death really the end? Or is there something uh, after we die? So that's what we'll talk a little bit about uh, tonight, uh, is what happens after we die. And my per- the perspective from which I'm going to address this has is primarily from the standpoint of those who are right with God or where, what happens to the spirits of the righteous individual after he dies. What does the Bible teach about that? Interestingly enough, there's not a whole lot about in the Bible, at least that I'm not able to put together and compile, about what the Bible says about the spirits of those who are not right with God, at least during what we during the period of what we call the, sometimes called the inter, the interim or the intermediate period between when a person dies and when Jesus returns again, but there is some information about the about the righteous, and we'll spend some time talking about that. There are there it's interesting there there in every I suppose time period and every culture uh, there are attempts by individuals to try to answer this question. Uh, and there are those who claim to know uh, what lies beyond the grave. And those, when individuals come forward with that, sometimes it becomes very popular. Well, not too long ago, uh, the story of a young boy who, who, who died and went to heaven and come back and, and was able to tell them about people that were there and, uh, and ex- share experiences uh, that he said that he had while he was in heaven. And that becomes sometimes very popular. Uh, it becomes a very, uh, I think, popular way to look at the subject, and many people rest their conclusions upon those very experiences of others. Uh, the Christian has a unique uh, advantage, I think, certainly perspective on that, uh, and that we don't have to necessarily rely upon the, the emotional experiences of other individuals, or maybe even our own uh, thoughts on that. We can go to what God says and we can find out from the scriptures what information about the life after death that can be found nowhere else. Uh, and so that uh, that's important for us, I think, to try to focus on that. 
there's more in the study that certainly that can be involved in one session. And added to that thought is that I believe there are a lot of questions that are not answered. And even there are things that you and I might come to a different conclusion on, that we look at the evidence together and we study the scriptures together uh, and we come to a different conclusion. And that's sort of, in some regards, I think, uh, going to be a part of our lesson tonight. I want to present two views about what happens to the spirits of the righteous after they're dead that are even popular, or at least that are present among Christians today. And I'm not going to present them from the perspective of, of this one's right and this one wrong. I think there are scriptures that, uh, in essence, uh, commend both of them. Uh, but we'll look at them, uh, and I think in the long run, in the final analysis, I don't know that it really matters a whole lot which side we come down on this. I think there are some things about this particular subject that we ought to be sure about and convicted about. The Bible says there is one hope, um, but I think there are some things we can disagree about, and in the final analysis, it doesn't really matter. Uh, but it is, I think, important for us to try to come to some conviction if we can. Uh, where do the spirits of believers go after death? What happens after I die? Uh, well, I think to answer that question, one thing we probably need to uh, assume that we agree on, or at least it becomes the basis of a discussion, um, is to agree what the Bible teaches about the nature of man. That the human being, according to what the scriptures teach us, is not just a body, not just a physical entity. We're not just a collection uh, of, uh, of physical chemicals brought together. Uh, that we're not even just life, as intriguing as that may be, physical life. But the Bible teaches that we have both a body and a spirit. And sometimes the word spirit is used in translation. Sometimes the word soul is used. And there's a sense in which we uh, sometimes in conversation use those words almost interchangeably. And that's not necessarily wrong because even in the original language, the idea of a soul and spirit uh, are used interchangeably. Two different words in the original language are used interchangeably to mean the same thing. And sometimes they mean something that is different. Uh, but there, there is not a single passage of Scripture we can go to that gives us all the information or complete picture of the state of the dead uh, and what takes place after death. So I'm going to take a few moments and look at two different views. One is more traditionally accepted than the other. Maybe it's the one that you've always been convinced of. The other is less traditional, but I think as well also has some scriptural basis to it. Uh, but understanding that human beings possess both a body and a soul, we recognize that those two entities of the human, uh, of the human being go different places. That when a person dies, what the Bible teaches us is the physical body goes back to the dust. From the dust it was made to the dust it goes back. We have even experiential evidence of that. If you go out here and you don't do it, but if you go out here and you dig somebody up and you look, you recognize that if they've been in there a while, their body's not the same. It decays. So there is a natural process of the decay of the physical body. It does eventually return to the elements from which it was made um, once, the once the body is dead. Unlike animals, though, humans possess uh, what we sometimes call a spirit or a soul, and this is a dimension about the human about the human uh, uh, makeup that uh, I think corresponds to the fact that we are made in God's image. Genesis chapter one, verse twenty six and twenty seven, uh, that we have a spirit within us. Now that spirit, uh, I think, is uh, could be looked at and referenced and is referenced maybe in different ways in our study of the scriptures. It maybe has to do with the aspect that God can communicate with us that we don't we're not driven simply uh, by instinct that we have the ability to rationally reason on things that are said and that God can appeal to our spirit. We have emotions uh, that maybe transcend uh, other creatures that uh, of this earth. And certainly we have this aspect of the element that goes beyond the grave. 
that it survives the physical death of the body. Uh, and the spirit that survives the physical death of the body is certainly what's in view. Even the Old Testament presents this element. And the Old Testament doesn't tell us a lot about, uh, about the nature of man or even about the afterlife. Not nearly as much as we find in the teachings of Jesus and the apostles. But even the Old Testament presents this very unified picture that after death there is a part of man... Uh, that goes on, and that death is really defined by the separation between the physical body and the spirit. Uh, in Genesis uh, chapter 35, when Rachel was dying, if you remember, when she was dying and given birth to Benjamin, the scripture tells us that Rachel's soul was departing as she died. So it's describing the process of Rachel's death by the fact that her body was there, but the spirit was departing or going away. Uh, same type of thing, is, I, I think, is, is involved in 1 Kings chapter 17. Uh, when Elijah, uh, on the other side of that, Elijah is bringing back to life the widow's son, it says in that text that Elijah called for the, God to allow the Spirit to come back to him. So the Spirit had departed, he called for God to allow the Spirit to come back. Now that sort of helps me understand what death is. Uh, he was dead because the Spirit had already gone. Um, and that's what Rachel was in the process of doing, dying because the Spirit was leaving the body. So the word death itself, is in its biblical use, uh, has the meaning of separation. It's not extinction, it's not annihilation, it's not it's, it's over, it's over, but the idea that things are separated, and that's the way James uses the terminology in chapter 2, verse 26, that uh, the body without the spirit is dead. There's a separation there. Uh, so that's the idea of not only of what death is, but also the nature of man, and that plays into our question even this evening, is what happens to the spirit? We kind of know what happens to the body when it goes to the grave. It is dead and it decays. Now that doesn't in any way mitigate the aspect of the resurrection. Uh, and I think one thing we have to sometimes remind ourselves about, this at least from my perspective, remind ourselves about, about what the Bible teaches about, uh, about the resurrection and what's ahead of us, um, is that our redemption and our hope is based on a bodily resurrection. What the Bible teaches is not that uh, our spirits are, after we are, our spirits are going to go somewhere and live in heaven by themselves uh, apart from our body. The re- what the Bible teaches is that we will be, uh, is, is our, our resurrection will be like the resurrection of Jesus. It calls Jesus' resurrection the first fruits of our resurrection and talks about the fact that our hope is that we will be like him and that we will have a resurrected body like his resurrected body. So our bodies will come out of the grave, John chapter 5, and we, we will be resurrected. Both the righteous and the unrighteous will be resurrected. And we will have a body that is, you see, uh, that is the home or the house of the spirit uh, that ultimately, you see, um, survives the physical death. So our body and our spirit are together as we alive. When we are dead, the body, the spirit leaves the body and the body goes into the grave. Uh, at the resurrection, that body will come out of the grave uh, and Jesus will give us a new body to be reunited with the spirit that God has saved through the blood of Jesus. And so that picture, I think, the idea of the actuality of the bodily resurrection is an important element so that we don't get caught up into what is a very, I think, popular idea that uh, that heaven itself is simply a, a, a place where spirits abide and that that's a, a, once we die, we'll never have a body again, we'll have a spirit. Uh, or the other element of that, that we're going to come back and live on this earth and that it's all about the physical. Uh, and certainly uh, that's uh, not uh, what's involved as well. Uh, so uh, what are the two views? Well, let me suggest to you these, these and we'll look at them in some of the scriptures that go along with them. 
the most traditional view about the interim period between the time that a righteous person dies and the time that Jesus returns in the resurrection of the physical body uh, might be termed as paradise and Hades. And that's my terminology. Uh, the Bible doesn't use that terminology. Uh, but the idea that when Christians die, their bodies return to the dust, awaiting a final resurrection at Jesus' second coming. And that our spirits go to a place that the Bible calls Hades. Uh, and this term Hades refers to the realm of the dead or the realm of the unseen. It is a place for uh, of departed spirits or, or bodiless spirits uh, where the body has gone to the grave and the spirit survived death. Uh, Hades then is the receptacle of these departed spirits. Uh, in terms of the terminology of the scriptures, uh, it's I think it's 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 helpful to see how both the Old and New Testament have sort of um, a very consistent view of this, and how the New Testament, uh, the Greek language, sort of uh, interprets the Hebrew language of the Old Testament. The Old Testament word uh, for grave uh, is the word sheol. Uh, and throughout the Old Testament, the word Sheol is, in 66 times, is almost universally uh, described, uh, translated as the grave. It comes from an original root word that means to dig and also a connotation to it of that which cannot be seen. So it's digging down to where you can't see or to a place that you can't see. Well, what's that give you a picture of? Well, it gives you a picture of digging a grave, the aspect of depositing the body. And so, and many times this Hebrew word simply means Sheol. It's a place where both the righteous and the wicked go in death. Genesis chapter 37 verse 35, surely I will go down to Sheol in the morning for my son, Jacob says. In the 18th Psalm in verse 5, the cords of Sheol surround me, the snares of death confront me. And that's one of those Hebrew parallelisms where the first word helps us understand the second word. The cords of Sheol are the snares of death. Uh, the grave itself. So both good and evil uh, are connected with the place Sheol um, and premature, premature entrance into Sheol, uh, even in Hebrew thought, uh, was seen to be many times evidence that, of God's judgment. So that death itself, physical death, became reflective of God's judgment uh, because a person then was sent down to Sheol. Now keep that in mind because that, I think, uh, helps us to better understand the New Testament concept of Hades but the New Testament word uh, is the word Hades, um, and it's used in the New Testament to translate the Hebrew word Sheol. Again, the, the definitions of the words themselves are very similar. Uh, Hades means unseen. Uh, Vine says it's a place of departed souls. And it signifies two things, or at least looking at the etymology of the word, the root of the word signifies two thoughts, connotation to come to us. One is that the, the, this place Hades represents that which cannot be seen. Uh, it is not in the physical realm. It is a spiritual realm and therefore corresponds also to this aspect of it's a place we don't know much about. Who's gone there to tell us what it's like? Come back and tell us what it's like. The grave beyond the grave is unseen. But also has this aspect from the, from the use of the terminology, the aspect of all receiving. Uh, most uh, modern, uh, more recent uh, etymology of the word suggests that this is the more probable uh, derivation from the word hado, which means all receiving. In other words, uh, it's irresistible. Uh, Hades going to turn anybody down? Anybody going to not go there? The idea of death itself, that's inherent in our concept of death, and as the Bible presents it as well. So this is an irresistible place that's unseen. Now, that itself makes it a little scary, doesn't it, from the standpoint of talking about the grave? But this is Hades. This is the realm of the dead, as the New Testament word would describe it. 
Unfortunately, the King James Version of the Bible doesn't contain the word Hades in the English translation because the King James Version, when it came uh, to that Greek word, translated it as hell. And that gives us the wrong impression sometimes. It gives the impression that what's being described here is the place of punishment for the wicked because that's usually how we would look at the English word hell. Uh, But that's a translation of the word Gehenna, uh, which is a different word and ultimately a different place as well. Uh, So Hades is not Gehenna. Uh, but Hades has to do with the punishment of, uh, of, of the unrighteous in the connotations even which is used uh, in the New Testament. But the view that we're talking about, the idea of paradise in Hades, um, suggests this aspect of three different places. Uh, that uh, this realm of departed spirits is divided into three parts. Now, paradise, the place of rest for the righteous, to Taurus, the place of torment for the wicked, and then a great gulf that separates these two realms. Um, and that's sort of the way that this uh, this is presented. Sometimes it's presented uh, in the form of a chart. And maybe you've seen these charts if you've in a, in a study of Luke chapter 16. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. The story of the rich man Lazarus gives us this picture uh, of, this, uh, of this realm that when the body dies, the spirit goes into the Hades, which is made up of paradise or Tartarus, and those are the two words that are used in Luke chapter 16 to describe where the rich man is and uh, where Lazarus is. The word paradise having to do with blessing, the term Tartarus having to do with torment. And I think there's three times in that text where it talks about, makes it specifically explicit, both from Abraham's words and from the rich man's words, that this is not a good place, Tartarus, that he's in torment um, and that he's in pain. But during this interim period then, the righteous are separated not only from the unrighteous by a great gulf, but the righteous are also separated from God and Christ because paradise is not in heaven. Paradise is in Hades in the realm of the dead. And at the resurrection then, the spirits of both the wicked and the righteous are united with the resurrected bodies, and that's when the final judgment will occur. So in this view, such is the state of the disembodied spirits until the resurrection of Christ, This is where spirits would reside until they are once again reunited with the body, at which time the spirits you see of both the wicked and the righteous uh, are brought before the judgment of God. And we'll talk about that in a few moments. But when that takes place, then the righteous, those who were at one time in paradise in Hades, will spend an eternity with God in heaven, and the wicked will spend an eternity, eternity with the devil in hell or in Gehenna. Now, how is this view then supported? Well, some of the passages, I think, are even contained on this chart. I'm not going to look at all of them, but probably the central focus of this particular view is Luke chapter 16, the story of the rich man Lazarus. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom, and that's another terminology that refers to this paradise in the the, uh, Hadean world. The rich man also died and was buried, being in torments in Hades. He lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus' evil things, but now he is comforted and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great gulf fix, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. And so what this presents to us is a picture of these two places, these two uh, compartments uh, or realms, if we want to use that terminology, within the place of the disembodied spirits. In Luke chapter 23, uh, Jesus told the thief on the cross, 
But surely I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And many times that passage is connected with this as well. Jesus was getting ready to die. And so was the thief getting ready to die. The fact that he would be with Jesus in paradise meant that he was going to be saved, that he was counted as a righteous individual. Um, and not only would he be in paradise, but Jesus would be in paradise with him. Uh, so this seems to offer support, at least from the aspect here, that there is a separate place um, that uh, bo- uh, that they would be, following their death, they would both be in paradise. Now, in connection with this, the fact that he says that Jesus says we will both be in paradise is connected to the passage of John chapter 20, verse 17. After Jesus is resurrected from the dead, before he had ascended to his father, he said to Mary, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father to my God and your God. And so the connection there is that paradise seemingly was not in heaven where God dwells. Jesus had been to paradise, but he had not yet ascended to his father following his resurrection. Uh, That it was only after his ascension that he went to heaven itself in the presence of God. And so words spoken three days you see, after this would seem to present this element that at that time, uh, paradise and heaven were two different places. Well, if paradise wasn't in heaven, then it was in Hades, and that supports this aspect of paradise in the Hadean world. Acts chapter 2, uh, in verse 31, when, G- when uh, Peter is talking about the resurrection of Christ and using David as evidence that Jesus had resurrected from the dead, uh, he talks about David's foreseeing this uh, he spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh seek corruption. So David's grave is over there. We know where he's at. But uh, what the passage said uh, in the Old Testament, you see, from the Psalms, was that uh, this that his soul would not be left in Hades. Now, that Psalm had to do with David primarily and the struggles that he was going through. It would seem as though, uh, it, it was not seem as though, it was certainly that uh, the, the Apostle Peter was using that psalm to refer specifically, messianically, to Jesus himself. That Jesus was, you see, uh, he was not left in Hades, but he was brought out of Hades, therefore signifying his resurrection from the dead. Um, so David, uh, who surely went to paradise, was in Hades when he died, as did Abraham and Lazarus and the thief on the cross. In Acts chapter 2, verse 34, uh, Peter says, David did not ascend into the heavens, suggesting... Uh, one could die and be in Hades and yet not be in heaven with the Father, suggesting this aspect here that paradise was not in heaven, uh, at least pointing in, in that direction. Now, that's one view, and that's a very popular, I think probably the most popular view among Christians as to what happens to the spirits of the righteous after they die, that, that there's interim, there's an intermediate period uh, where we don't go directly to heaven, we don't go uh, directly to hell, that we go to the Hadean world awaiting the judgment of God. Some things that, that, to notice about this. One is that there's no suggestion uh, that there is any crossing over. This doesn't give any support to the Catholic doctrine of purgatory, that you go one place and then if you work real hard you'll get to another place, or even that this is a place that's not quite in a relationship with God yet and you have to work a little harder to get in a proper relationship with God, such as the, the Catholic doctrine of purgatory teaches. So not all intermediate states that are talked about in religion are the same. Uh, the Mormons uh, teach a, uh, an intermediate state uh, along with this aspect of uh, even Jehovah's Witness doctrine, but it's a place where the soul is unconscious, where you're not, you're not aware of anything. You're just sort of sleeping, uh, as they use the term, and your spirit is unconscious. Again, 
The Bible doesn't say anything about that. In fact, it teaches just the opposite of that. If you look at Luke 16, both Lazarus and uh, the rich man are very conscious of what's going on um, and what's taking place uh, and where, where they are at or what's happening to them. So there are different ways in which this particular concept of an intermediate state, uh, I think, has, uh, has been adulterated in, in men's teaching and certainly is not the biblical teaching at all. But let me suggest another view, and this view is maybe not as popular as the one we just looked at, but it does, I think, have uh, some credibility. I know several uh, Christians I greatly respect that take this view. And again, I don't know that it's crucial uh, which way you come down on this. Uh, Everything about the traditional view remains the same for the period prior to the ascension of Jesus to heaven. Uh, All who die before went to Hades. The wicked went to torment, awaiting judgment. The righteous went to paradise, paradise that was in the Hades, Hadean world, awaiting judgment. Um, even Jesus, with the thief on the cross, uh, went to paradise in Hades, just as we looked at earlier. But after Jesus ascended to heaven, uh, then the intermediate state of the righteous is changed. In fact, what takes place is the uh, the obsolescence of the Hadean world in connection with the righteous, and I suppose. Uh, by extension, the unrighteous as well, in the sense that Jesus did away with that through his resurrection from the dead, his ascension back to the Father. What this view says is that after Jesus' ascension, the intermediate state of the righteous is different and that paradise is now in heaven and not in the Hadean world. Uh, And that the hope of the righteous is to spend the intermediate state in the presence of the Lord awaiting the resurrection and the judgment. Now what brings a person to to consider the aspect that there might be a change in the, in the destiny of the uh, of the of the spirit of the righteous after the ascension of Jesus, and there are reasons to suggest I think that this particular uh, change may very well have taken place. One is that after the ascent after the ascension to heaven, paradise is the resting place of the righteous is now spoken of as being in heaven. That when we see a references to paradise, it points us not to the realm of the dead, but rather to this aspect of where Jesus himself uh, um, uh, resides. We saw earlier when Jesus spoke to Mary and said, Jesus said he had not yet ascended to his father back into heaven, though he'd been in paradise prior to his resurrection. If you connect this with the passage uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, where Paul talks about paradise, it would seem to suggest to us uh, that the place where Paul wa- had visited, the third heaven, to which he was unable to speak to tell us anything about, which would suggest to me Paul knew some things about that that he didn't tell us, but that that, he, that, that was synonymous with the aspect of where Jesus was. Turn to chapter 12, verse 2. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in body I do not know or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a one was caught up to the third heaven, and I know such a man, whether in body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows, how he was caught up into paradise and heard an expressible word, which is not lawful for a man to utter. And it would seem as though what's being described here, and what certainly what even the... the, the uh, uh, Jewish interpretation of this passage was is that the third heaven represented the aspect of heaven itself or the presence of God and that that's where Paul had actually been in this in terms of this vision that he uh, that uh, he took pla- that took place now if that's if, if that's the right interpretation of this then paradise is now in heaven since the ascension of Jesus now, how is that supported any other way in Scripture besides an interpretation of 2 Timothy, 2 Corinthians chapter 12? 
Well, I think what we recognize is that when we look in the New Testament, what we find often is that the expectation of the righteous, when they viewed death, was not that they would go to an intermediate state, but they would be in the presence of Jesus. That when they died, that that was going to be their hope. Uh, Philippians chapter one, uh, Philippians chapter one and verse twenty-three. Paul says, "I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better." So when Paul's talking about whether it be better to stay here or to die, uh, he says that'd be better to, be, I, I desire to depart and be with Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, so we are always confident knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. We are confident, yes, well pleased rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Is it possible for a person to be absent from the body and not be present with the Lord? Well, that would seem to, that, that, that's an option that doesn't seem to be available here in this text. Was there a time in which that was possible to be absent from the body and to not be present with the Lord? Well, again, you look back to what we looked at. If what took place in Luke chapter 16 is a representation of what it was like to die and, the, and where the righteous spirit would go at that time, then those individuals were in paradise, but they weren't with Jesus and they weren't with God. They were in the Hadean world. It wasn't only, it wasn't until later you see that they could actually enjoy the presence of Jesus. So they were without the body, yet not with the Lord. Yet when Paul talks about this aspect of what the Christian's perspective was after the ascension of Jesus, he says, you see, we're confident and well-pleased to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9, where God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. So that the immediate expectation of the one that was sleep would be that he would be living with Jesus after death. In Stephen's prayer in Acts chapter 7 verse 59, they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. It would seem that he anticipated that his prayer would be immediately answered and Jesus was going to bring his spirit to him and receive his spirit when he died. That his soul would be with the Lord. So there are evidences in Scripture that the expectation of the Christian after the ascension of Jesus was that his death would usher him into the very presence of Jesus and that Jesus, of course, is at heaven at the right hand of God. Another place where I think this, this maybe is pointed to is Revelation chapter 6. Um, in the description of Revelation chapter 6 of the righteous dead being in heaven, uh, is a, a picture of where, and again, understand that Revelation is, is word pictures, and that's what we're getting here, uh, is a picture that there are those who are in heaven who are pleading with God at the same time that there are those on the earth, and the activities of the earth are still going on. Uh, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who've been slain for the word of God. Now, those folks were dead, weren't they? And for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? So there are those in heaven, the presence of God, who had already died, who were in the presence of the Lord, who were saying, How long will you let this go on and not avenge us to those who are still alive on the earth? Uh, and so then a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said of them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were was completed. So that's again... That corresponds to this aspect, that those who had died in the Lord were actually in the presence of Jesus um, after they had died and before uh, Jesus' second coming. The scripture speaks of Jesus bringing the righteous with him at his final co- coming in First Thessalonians chapter 3. 
so he so they may establish your hearts blameless and holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. So when Jesus does return, the saints will be with him. The same thing is mentioned in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, uh, where Paul says that uh, if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus or those who have died, you see, who are righteous. Now I recognize in those passages in 1 Thessalonians that it's possible that uh, that, that, that Jesus is in heaven and those spirits are still in the Hadean world and Jesus is going to sort of pick them up on his way by, uh, on his way here. That, that could be a way of looking at that passage as well. Um, but it also could very well mean that the saints are already with him. And that's the most typical way in which that language is used, that if someone is coming with you, that they are with you now. And so that the saints are with Jesus now. I find it as well in looking at these two views that it's it's difficult to reconcile such passages uh, that are that are uh, with about Jesus uh, being with the saints immediately after death and expectation of this of his saints that that would take place with Luke chapter 16 unless there was a change unless there was something that took place to change that state of where the righteous dead are uh, then sometimes it's hard to reconcile those passages together so I leave that with you and you look at that and maybe study it some more. Or maybe you have already some settled convictions on that. One thing I know is that whether it's immediately or whether it's later on in terms of at the time of the resurrection, the hope of the Christian is to be with Jesus. The hope of the Christian is that in the consummation of things, God's going to receive us into his place and that Jesus is going to prepare a place for us that where he is, where, there we may be also. Another note to this, real quickly, is why would the why would the change occur? Why would there be a difference uh, in the in the afterlife uh, before and after Jesus' ascension to heaven? Well, again, uh, looking at what the Bible tells us, it's real hard, or maybe impossible, to come to with a real solid explanation about that. Uh, what we would look at maybe would be speculation in some sense. But here's a thought. What the Bible teaches us is that men's inability to live with God, to dwell with him, which is God's ultimate desire is that we would dwell with him, you see, is sabotaged by our own sin. God's holy and we're not holy. and We can't be in the presence of God unless we are sanctified and made holy, unless our sin is dealt with. And prior to the death of Jesus Christ, the true price for sin had not yet been paid chronologically, although Jesus' death was an assured thing, and the Bible talks about it as something that had already been accomplished before Jesus ever died on the cross. Chronologically in time, you see, it had it, the, the saints of the Old Testament and those who, who died righteously before Jesus died on the cross were awaiting the payment for the sin that was got, the sin they had committed to take place. And so that those you see who were in the grave, uh, who were destined to be in the presence of God, could not yet really be in the presence of God until the price was paid. What the Hebrew writer calls the eternal redemption price was paid by Jesus' own blood. Uh, and so what the Hebrew writer describes is that in, in terms of the New Testament saints is that we have come to the spirits of just men now made perfect, he says in the book of Hebrews. So that now every man is made justified and individuals have come to the new Jerusalem. They've come into the presence of God because every spirit has been perfected through the blood of Jesus Christ. Um, and so that's one element of that that I don't know the Bible really spells that out for us. But the principle of holiness may very well be a reason why uh, someone could consider this aspect of a change. So there you have it. Thank you for your attention on that subject um, in terms of 
what might be some possible looks at of what happens to the righteous dead. One thing is certain. After I die, I will stand before the judgment seat of God. However, I might think about the spirits of men getting to that point. That's certainly where history is headed, and that's where every man is headed, is to stand before the judgment seat of God. And that final judgment scene is an eternal validation of the vindication of God. And I think sometimes we struggle with the question, well, if, if a person goes to paradise and then goes to heaven and waits and the judgment's not till later on that he can he can't go from one place to another, then what's the judgment day all about? They've already been judged. You're judged as soon as you die. So what's the big deal about the judgment day if you already know where you're going to go when the moment that you die, or it's already been settled where you go the moment you die, you will know as well. Well, that helps me to understand that the judgment day is not all about you and I finding out where we're going to spend eternity. That's not what the judgment day is all about. What the judgment, the final throne scene is about is the validation and the vindication of God for why you go where you go, and I go where I go. Is God just? Is God righteous? Is God doing what ought to be done when he sends the sinner to an eternal hell, or when he sends a a sinner to heaven itself? What can make, you see, everyone know, by everyone we mean everything in the universe know, that God is doing what is right, and that God is just. Well, there's a judgment scene. There is a day in which every man will stand before God, And everything will be made known. In Revelation chapter 20, this is presented to us, again, in the language of Revelation. There I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and heaven fled away. And there was found no place for them. No one could exempt themselves from this. There was no place to hide. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books, The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead that were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast in the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. That's a frightening scene, is it not? But it's also a glorious scene. Notice that everyone, both dead and alive, standing before the presence of God, verse 12. And there are two openings here, if I'm understanding this passage correctly. The text says that the books were opened, plural, the books were opened. Then it says that the book of life was opened, a separate entity. So it suggests to us there were books opened, and then there was the book of life opened. And the judgment took place on the platform of the opening of those books. And what it tells me is that the judgment was made according to each man's works. So everything in your life, every thought, every event... Every sin, every righteous act, every act of obedience is exposed on that day of judgment. Nothing is hidden. Everything is made known and is certainly revealed by God's activity in the judgment. Now, if I'm judged according to my works, and this is the frightening part about it, I can't even recall my works. Can you recall all yours? God's not going to miss any. They're all open. I can recall some pretty bad things, though. So if I'm going to be judged according to my works, how am I going to ever survive this judgment scene? How can I possibly survive this introspection and this inspection of God himself? Because it's going to expose my unholiness without any doubt if I'm judged according to my works. Now, if that's all there is to it, if a man is just judged according to his works and that's all there is to it, who gets in? Nobody gets in. 
But you see, I believe that those books over here were just exactly that. And most agree that the books there have to do with the aspect of the examination that God will make, does make up every person's life. The books were opened. But then there was also another book opened. And that was the book of life. And that, life is not, that book is not a book that examines what I have done or what you have done. It is a book of names because it depicts it here as a book where an individual's name is written in it. And if a person's name is written in the book of life, then he gets in. doesn't make any difference what it says over here if his name is in the book of life. Because it says if your name's not in the book of life, you're cast in the lake of fire. So the book of life, you see, is rather important here. How can a sinner be judged according to his works and not experience the second death? How can that possibly take place? Because there is another book. And that is the book of life. And if my name is written in the book of life, then I'm okay. I will survive the judgment of God. I will get to heaven. Now, that's the final judgment of God. My name needs to be there. How does it get there? Well, again, the book of Revelation is rather insightful here because it talks about the book of life being made up of those who have been sanctified by the blood of the Lamb. In fact, it's called the book of the Lamb. So my name written in that book has to do with whether or not the blood of the Lamb has been applied to my sins. If Jesus' blood has been applied to my sins, my name is written there. You remember what Jesus said to the disciples who were so happy they'd been able to cast out demons? Jesus had given the power to overcome, you see, great spiritual forces in this limited commission as he went out to the, to the children of Israel to make known the coming of the kingdom. And they came back just elated the fact that they'd been able to see such great spiritual power. And Jesus said, that's wonderful. But if you really want to rejoice, you need to rejoice over whether or not your names are written in the book of life. That's what really matters, whether or not your name is written in the book of life, you see. So that's where we're at in terms of understanding where the righteous dead are and what the state of the righteous dead will be. It all has to do with what takes place now. It has to place with what you and I do at this moment as to whether or not we will be in one place or another. Whether or not we theologically work it all out won't really matter if our names are not written in the book of life. So whatever you believe about the second coming, know that the second coming and the judgment that takes place is intricately connected with the decision that you make today as whether or not you will serve Christ, be obedient to his will, and be forgiven by his blood. So we call you to, the, to, to, uh, to salvation in Jesus Christ by your willingness to obey uh, Jesus himself and get your name written in the book of life. Come to the Lamb in the blood of the Lamb and be sanctified and be cleansed because that is the way to life. Thank you. Can we help you respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ while we stand and while we sing? We invite you to come.